Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, guys, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're looking at verses 35 through 37 today. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back by the AV booth. That is our gift to you. And as you turn there, let me review from last Sunday. Jesus taught us two things that matter last Sunday. The first, that we are to love God with all of our hearts and with all of our soul with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. In other words, we are to love God from out of who we are. We're to love Him with every facet out of of our entire being. And the second command is to love others, to love our neighbor. And it's not just to love our neighbor. We're supposed to love them like we love ourselves. We are to, to love other people as much as we love ourselves. Some of the key points from last week, we talked about this this kind of love, this agapao love, agape love, and we defined it. It's a faithful love, regardless of the cost to you. This kind of love costs you something. Agapao love is a love that gives until you got nothing left to give. This kind of love... (laughs) Man, it's going, to, it's going to push you over the very limit of your human patience, of your pride, of your ego. Agapao love, it will absolutely exhaust you. And the reason that it exhausts you is because it's a purifying love. God is doing something new in you. It's going to bring things out of you that you had no idea were even in here. For example, you know, when a thought runs through your brain, you're like, where did that come from? Or how about when just something drops from your mouth? You're like, oops, that was kind of wicked. Where did that come from? Why do we still do these things? Why do we still have these thoughts that run through our, through our minds? Why do, why do we have no filter at times? Because God is preparing, he's purging you of yourself. He's purging you of you. He's preparing you to meet him face to face. And it's in this life where that sin that remains in us, it's got to be cleansed. It's got to be purged out. In fact, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say in this. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 19. He says, I do not do the good that I want to do. Instead, I practice the evil that I don't want to do. Say what? You practice, you rehearse, you train, Paul, the evil that you don't want to do? Wow. And then he goes on in verses 24 and 25. He says, man, what a wretched man that I am. What a miserable human being I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. 
He says, thanks be to God, it's Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Our Lord, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the answer. So when these wicked things cross your minds and you, and you still struggle with these self-control issues, dear friends, please don't think that you're unique in that. Because thinking that you're unique in that, that's just a, a ploy from the demonic. Um, we, we get into a victim mindset on that. I have a pastor friend who says this, we all have a bad case of the normals, all of us, and that's the normals, is the struggle with sin that we have. But the struggle with sin, that, that doesn't mean that God's going to leave you where you are. That's not an excuse to stay there. See, God is using this, this agapao love just like he did in Jesus. So key point number two it takes two commands to embrace the one will of God. We learn that loving God and loving people, that's how you prove that you are a child of God. Scripture tells us that you, you can't love the one true living God and not like people. We discussed how easy it is to love an invisible God, but it's impossible to love people with an agapao love. How do we practically do this? How do we practically love people as much as we love ourselves? Well, key point number three from last week, we love not perfectly. This is not perfection. We love increasingly. God doesn't demand perfection from you. So please stop trying to be perfect. All of you perfectionists, you're putting pressure on yourself where God isn't. And you're also putting pressure on those closest to you to reach this invisible, intangible goal of perfection, whatever that looks like for you. And if you really want to know a secret, you're driving the rest of us crazy. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Life is a whole lot easier when you finally admit that you're a mess just like the rest of us. And, that, and that's why Scripture talks about this thing called sanctification. When, when God gave you eternal life through the grace of Jesus, you were at that moment, you were justified, meaning that, that your sin debt was paid by the blood of Jesus. God the Father's wrath for your sin, it was satisfied, not by you, but by Jesus. Now, all of us are living in this state of sanctification until our last breath. Now, sanctification, it really is a lifelong tragic process of this gradual purification from your sin. It's painful. God has sanctified you for his purpose. He has set you apart for his work. And you're learning to love God and to love people. And at the very same time, you're learning to hate your sin, which you used to love. You used to hate God and run from him. Now you love God and you hate your sin. It's quite the paradox, isn't it? And, and many Christians, they, they fight this battle the wrong way. Uh, they see this battle not as a good thing, but a bad thing. We always say, well, you know, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. And they, they just don't realize that sanctification, it is a gift from God. That your battles, your struggles, your trials, and yes, even your failures, they are making you into that person that Christ has chosen you to be. He's molding you and shaping you. 
Lastly, key point number four from last week is that you don't fall into this kind of love. You have to choose agapo love. Agape love, it's a choice. It is not, not, not a feeling. This kind of love is not a feeling. How was the Lord Jesus feeling when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he was begging God the Father to find another way for him to to pay for your sin? How did the Lord Jesus feel when people mocked him and slapped him and, and pulled his beard and beat him during his trial? How did the Lord Jesus feel when the Roman soldiers flogged him? They turned Jesus' back into hamburger meat that day. How was he feeling about that? How was he feeling when he hung from the cross, gasping for air, getting ready to die of suffocation? How was Jesus feeling? Dear friends, agapao love is not, not, not a feeling. It is a choice. You have a choice to love your spouse and to love your children and your neighbor with this, the same supernatural kind of love that Jesus loves you with. Now, there are a lot of factors that go into that. For example, that does not mean that you're a doormat. But keep in mind, you, you can't love like Jesus on your own. You, you don't have that capacity. This kind of love is a gift from the Holy Spirit, and and he gives you this kind of love when you take time to read his word, to study his word, to meditate on his word, to apply his word to your life, not on a daily basis, not on an hourly basis, but with every breath. That's how much we need the Lord Jesus. So when you read the word of God by the Spirit of God, you will experience God day by day. So that's all a review from Sunday. Now, our last view, uh, I'm sorry, our last verse was Mark chapter 12, verse 34. That's where we ended. Mark tells us that no one dared to question Jesus any longer. So not only did the religious leaders fail in trapping Jesus as a heretic, but Jesus answered all of their questions so thoroughly that they didn't have any other questions for him. So Jesus silenced the religious leaders. (laughs) That's saying something, to silence a bunch of preachers? Seriously. So Jesus passed number four last week. So in other words, what Jesus did, he proved himself to be the Lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world. Those four tests that we went over is indeed proving that Jesus is without spot. He's without wrinkle. He's without blemish. Well, Since no one has anything else to say to Jesus, we're going to see Jesus turn the tables on the scribes and the Pharisees today. Jesus has a question of his own. And today's scripture passage, it's only three verses long. But don't let the brevity fool you here. Why is that? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 and the following While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how then can he be his son? 
and the large crowd was listening to him with delight. Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us the privilege to be able to open up your word and to read it verse by verse. You have many, many things to teach us today. Lord, I, I pray that we are listening. I pray that we lay all of these trials, these temptations, these tribulations that are in the back of our mind. I pray, them, I pray that we, we lay them at the foot of the cross this morning so we can hear you. And when we hear you, then we can obey you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Matthew's gospel says this in Matthew twenty-two forty-one. When the Pharisees were together, Jesus asked them, what do you guys think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? So Jesus has been on the defense now for the last four questions. Now it's Jesus' turn. He now turns the tables. He goes on the offensive and he starts to ask his own questions. So he asks this question to the crowd. Verse 35. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Jesus is specifically going after the one who just asked the last question. He was the scribe. Scribes were easily identifiable. They, they usually wore a, a long white robe and it had some white fringe on it. And they dressed like this on purpose uh, to stand out. They wanted to stand out in the crowd. When a, when a scribe walked by, most people would have to rise to their feet and pay their respects to the scribe uh, because they were, quote-unquote, these religious great men. Only tradesmen who were actually working, they were exempt from this, this rule. And then not only were you to stand, but you were to greet these scribes by saying, Rabbi, which means my master, my great one, my Lord. Rabbi, you could say today it would be like Dr. So-and-so. Uh, wealthy people, they had these parties, they would invite a scribe, and the scribe would sit at the place of honor, usually to the right or to the left of the host. Um, and really, all of that showmanship, it, it comes, comes into play next week when Jesus starts to warn people about the scribes. So back to verse 35. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? So Jesus' question has to deal with the Messiah. The Messiah... That is a title that means anointed one. It's rendered in Greek as Christos. It's, it's where we get the word Christ. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's his title. So key point number one, let's define what the Messiah is here. The Messiah, the Christ, he is a man, very important, who God has anointed, even more important, to deliver the, the Jews from out of political oppression. The Messiah, the Christ, is a man who God has anointed to deliver the Jews from out of political oppression. This man is a political revolutionary for the Jews. So picture the scene here. Jesus is now the one asking the questions. So can't you just feel the, the tension in the temple start to rise? The scribes and, the, and his Pharisaic buddies here, they're starting to get a, lo a little bit nervous. And what Jesus really, what he's doing here is just warming them up. 
Because this is an easy question to answer. Everybody knows that the Messiah is going to be, A, a man, and two, he's going to be this warrior king who comes from David's family line. The scribes, they taught this over and over and over again. It's called the Davidic covenant. So David, Davidic, Davidic, David. So let's turn there. Let's see what the scribes were teaching. The background to this text is that King David wanted to build the temple, but the Lord, he steps in and he says, no, you're not going to build the temple. So we find what the scribes were teaching in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Nathan is David's prophet. Go to, go to my servant David and say this. This is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time that I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I haven't dwelled in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all of my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken to one of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So the Lord is asking a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Skip down to verse 12. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, so when David dies, I'm going to raise up after you and your descendants who will come from your body, and I'm going to establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's the background to Jesus' question. So back to verse 35. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Well, the meaning of Jesus' question, it gets lost on us as 21st century Americans. And the reason for that is because the word son, it really doesn't carry the weight with us as it did in the, in the first century. A couple things to note here. The phrase son of David, it simply means a man who is a dependent from King David. The word son carries the concept of being less than your father. So in other words, the son is secondary to the father. That The son is always subordinate to his father. Secondly, we have to ask this question. Why did God the father choose King David's family line? Why is it David's family line for the Messiah to come from? Well, first and foremost, David was Israel's most prominent king. This guy had it all. He was a shepherd, a poet, he was a warrior, he was a musician, he was a, a great administrator. I mean, he was probably tall and had a full head of hair. So wrong. All that to say this, look, King David's rule, it was known as the golden age of Israel. And as we fast forward now to the first century, the Jews, they were, they were longing for this kind of kingdom. They, they didn't want to be ruled by the Romans. They, they longed for their freedom. So they're putting their hope in this unnamed man named the Messiah. And the one thing that they knew about him is that he's going to come from King David's family line. So let's pause for a second. Who at this time knows that Jesus is the Messiah? Who knows that? We got 12. The 12 disciples, they know. Because when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Um, remember blind Bartimaeus? Blind Bart? He knew. 
He was, he was the one on the road screaming, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, son of David. And then Jesus healed him. The Jewish crowd knew as Jesus entered Jerusalem just a few days prior. They knew because they were, they were singing this, this uh, psalm, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And then lastly, the scribes knew as well. They wouldn't admit to it, but they knew. The Jews were emphatic in keeping genealogies. So you can bank on the fact here that, that the scribes and the Pharisees, they checked to see if Jesus came from David's family line. He did. Both his non-biological earthly father, Joseph, came from that line. His mother, Mary, they were direct descendants of David. So Jesus continues here in verse 36. He says, David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 verse 1. Psalm 110, it's a well-known psalm by the scribes. It's also known as a messianic psalm. Uh, a psalm is, is a, really, it's Hebrew poetry. Um, psalms contain prayers and hymns and laments and songs. But a messianic psalm, it predicts the Messiah. Now, there are over 70 psalms that do that, but Psalm 110 is unique, and the reason for that is because it was, it was a hymn that was sung during the crowning of a new king for Israel. So it was a coronation psalm. So yes, the scribes, very, very familiar with Psalm 110. And then moving on to Jesus' second question here in verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. So here we have Jesus as a follow-up question. David himself calls him Lord. So how then can he be his son? So part one of Jesus' question, that's way too easy. Part two, though, this is profound. So let's slow down here and see what Jesus is, is asking. Jesus is asking this question. How can the Messiah, how can this conquering political warrior be both David's son and his Lord. Because no, no father calls his own son Lord. That'd be weird. You know, sons are subservient. They're submissive to their fathers. So what's going on here? Look back at verse 36. David himself says by the Holy Spirit. Notice that the Holy Spirit is speaking through David. So in other words, David is speaking the truth here. Many, there are many people who say that this is a mistake in your, in your Bible. This is not a mistake. God used David as the human agent to write this psalm. So look at the text. Does it sound to you like there are two lords in this psalm? The Lord declared to my Lord. So let me get all geeky on you here. Let me get real technical for just a few moments uh, we got to get in the weeds here to understand what's going on. That word Lord there in the Greek is kairos, and it means master or ruler. The closest word in, in, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament Hebrew, is Adonai. The proper name for Adonai is Yahweh. Yahweh is the sacred name of God. Uh, this is the name that God revealed himself to Moses. When, when Moses said, well, what's your name? Who, who am I going to... Who am I going to say sent me back to the Israelites? And, and God says, I am who I am, Moses. 
I am Yahweh. So in Jewish tradition, what they would do is they would substitute the word Adonai instead of pronouncing Yahweh. They would not say the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, because it was too holy to speak. So all that to say this, the confusion that we have in this text is that the same Greek word is used for two different Hebrew words. So it translates, obviously, into English that way as well. So to understand what's going on, we got to turn to Psalm 110, verse 1. we got to look at that. So Psalm 110, verse 1, it reads virtually the same thing. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. The first word in Hebrew there, that word Lord, is Yahweh. Notice in your translation, prayerfully, it's all capitalized. Second word for Lord there, it's not capitalized. That is Adonai. If you have the Legacy Standard Bible, it says that. They do a good job of translation there. Adonai is a term for God that reflects his authority. Once again, Jesus is the master, the ruler, the Christ, the Messiah. So in, in Psalm 110, what we have is Yahweh, he's having a conversation with someone else who is given the title Adonai or Lord. So in most cases throughout the Old Testament, Adonai is the, he's the supreme title for Yahweh. So this Adonai, Lord, it, it means someone who is absolutely sovereign. This is why sometimes we find the words Lord and Lord back to back, especially in the Psalms. Like in Psalm 8, we got Lord, our Lord. How magnificent is your name throughout the, throughout the earth? In the original Hebrew text, it says, O Yahweh, our Adonai. So verse 36, back to our text, could be translated this way. God the Father declared to God the Son. God the Father declared to God the Son. That's who's speaking to whom. Key point number two. The Messiah is not only the Son of David, but also the Son of God. The Messiah is not only the Son of David. He's not just a man. He's also the Son of God. He's divine. Jesus is not only revealing to the scribes here that he himself is indeed the Messiah, but he's also God wrapped up in flesh and bones. He is termed the God-man. Have you heard that term, the God-man? That's where this comes from. So moving on here, God the Father declared to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So the right hand, it signifies honor, it signifies justice. The right hand is a word picture for Jesus' status. Uh, this refers to Jesus' rank, his position. It's a reference to his divine power. Psalm 110, it symbolizes that Jesus is co-equal with God the Father. And ultimately what Psalm 110 does is it affirms Jesus' deity. So this is why we say that Jesus is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And when we, when we hear that word king and, and kingship, I, I know it's hard for us to grasp that because we live in a republic. You know, in other words, if we don't like our leaders, we vote them out. Not so in a kingdom, especially in a heavenly kingdom. 
Inside a heavenly kingdom, God the Father states, he says, Jesus, the son of David and the son of, of God, he is the king of kings. You do not get a vote for this. Please note here that Jesus is not running for office. Pastor Tom Nelson, he says this, God doesn't run for God. Jesus is telling the scribes, look guys, your view of the Messiah is way too low. Your thinking about the Messiah, about the Christ, is too earthy. So in other words, their view of the Messiah is partial. They only got half of it. Yes, they understood that the Messiah would be a man who is a descendant of David, but that's not the whole story here. Their view did not do justice to the scriptures. And for the Messiah to be David's Lord, he must be so much more than just a, a mere mortal. For the Messiah to be David's Lord, he must also be God. And that's where the rub is, isn't it? Is Jesus God? John chapter 10, verse 33, the crowd was getting ready to stone Jesus, and they say this to him, we're not stoning you for a good work, Jesus. We're going to stone you for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's so hard for us, for people, it's part of your own testimony, I would imagine, to come to terms that this man, Jesus, is God. People insult Jesus by saying, ah, you know, he's a good man, he's a, he's a good teacher. That's true, but that's not the whole story. Jesus is God. Back to verse 36. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus is still quoting um, Psalm 110 there. Picture Jesus sitting down as the rightful ruler and the king while God the Father destroys all of his enemies. That's the picture here in verse 36. And you know what? In the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, we, we see this happen in real time. Uh, let me give you a little background. The, the Israelites, they conquer the cities of Jericho and Ai, the neighboring kings, the nations. They don't like this at all. So uh, basically, Israel's taking over the land. So these pagan nations, they come together and they form an alliance. And basically, you've got five nations against one. And the Israelites, they are terrified. They are absolutely terrified. Long story short, God throws the pagan nations into confusion. Israel defeats them. And we pick it up here in Joshua chapter 10, verse 24. When they had brought the kings to him... Joshua summoned all the men of Israel, and he said to the military commanders, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So the commanders came forward and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said, Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to, you, to all the enemies that you fight. So that's, that's the picture there. That's what God the Father is going to do to Jesus' enemies. Who are Jesus' biggest enemies at this time? You've got the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, isn't this fitting? That, that the final conversation in the temple, it focused on Jesus' identity as the Son of David and the Son of God. Verse 37 
How then can he be his son? So Jesus asked that question. The scribes and the Pharisees, they've all got PhDs and D-mens, right? Dr. So-and-so, they're speechless. All you hear is crickets. They do not answer. And then you see verse 37, the large crowd was listening to Jesus with delight. That last sentence is disturbing. Because Jesus reveals himself as the son of David and the son of God. And the crowd was delighted. Your translation may read, they they heard him gladly. Are you kidding me? They have the privilege of, of standing in the presence of the one true living God. And that's it. Why are they not falling on their face begging for mercy? Why, why are they not falling at Jesus' feet in worship? No, they heard him gladly. Does that sound familiar from another piece of scripture? You guys remember who else heard a man of God gladly? Remember Herod? Herod heard John the Baptist gladly. But that did not prevent him from executing John the Baptist. And the same thing is going to happen to Jesus. This same crowd who is now entertained by Jesus is going to be crying out, crucify him, crucify him in just two short days. So I know that's a lot. How does that apply to you today? Stay with me for just a few more moments. Despite everything that the scribes and the Pharisees knew and they taught about the Messiah, that one colossal concept was missing in their theology. The concept was that the man, the Messiah, the Christ, is also God. The Messiah, the man who has been anointed by God the Father to deliver the Jews out of political uh, oppression, is also God himself. Jesus Christ is the God-man. His very name, Jesus Christ, it says it all. Jesus means God saves. The Christ, it means the anointed. And when you put that together, Jesus Christ, his full name says, God saves by his anointed. And the reason that this is so important for you today is because of God's agapao love for your wretched soul. Why is there only one way to be saved? Why did God have to become a man and and live a perfect life? Here's the answer. It's found right here in this scripture. Because no mere mortal can pay God back for all of the sin of all mankind. The only one who can satisfy God's wrath for your sin, that's called propitiation, is Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the God-man. And there are two reasons that Jesus had to be both God and man. Number one, only God himself can make that propitiation. And number two, only man can make the satisfaction. Because it was man who sinned. Man had to pay. This is why God, the God-man, that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Jesus, yes, he is truly human. The Christ, he is divine, the God-man. Theologically, this is known as the hypostatic union. 
The Apostle Paul writes about this in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess. Listen now. Jesus Christ is what? He's Lord. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All that to close with this. Dear friends, don't you dare give up on your family and your friends and your neighbors who are not saved. We see Jesus as the compassionate evangelist here. In two days, he's getting ready to die by the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees and the last conversation he has with them, he's trying to save their soul. Jesus is the Christ. He loves you and your family more than you can fathom. He is the one who saves, not you. You don't save. Please don't put that salvific pressure on yourself. Your job is to continue praying and inviting and sharing. Really, your job is to give them over to God, to let them go. And just watch what God does. And then lastly, we see Jesus as the compassionate evangelist in this, in this text. So I would encourage you to continue practicing your three circles so that you too, that you too can fulfill your duty as a compassionate evangelist right here in our backyard for the Verde Valley. Father in heaven, what a deeply, deeply amazing text you have placed before us today. Just the concept to think about how Jesus got up off of his throne in heaven where angels sing, holy, holy, holy. To become a man to pay for our sin debt. And we know that the Lord Jesus paid for our sin debt because after he was mocked and spit on and beaten, after he died on that cross and shed his blood as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was buried and you rose him from the grave. He walks out of his own grave. that shows us, that proves to us that the propitiation has been satisfied and that we, Lord God, we are at peace with you. What an amazing thing to have peace with the one true living God after everything that we've done. So Lord, I pray that this is a message that we do not keep to ourselves. I pray for this little church on the hill and I pray, Father, that we do our job as compassionate evangelists as well that we continue sharing, we continue inviting, we continue to give out those Bibles and those invitation cards. And then we're going to stand back and wa watch what you do in the Verde Valley. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.